0: This morning, I was having another one of my deep conversations with our young people. It's amazing the vocabulary, especially these young girls have. This particular conversation was with Hannah Holloman. Of course, she's always bubbly, excited. Church is the highlight of her week, and you can tell because she wears a little more bling than the rest of the girls. So I asked her, I said, hey, I think it's a special week. I think there's a holiday, a big holiday this week. Do you know what it is? She said, yes, potluck. <laughs> so you need to know that if you're visiting with us here today, that Thanksgiving is here, potluck is there, according to Hannah Holloman. Well, excited to be with you this morning and to sit under the ministry of the word together. I'm going to start with an illustration. Alvin York was one of 11 children born in the sticks of Tennessee, didn't have much schooling. And as a result, found himself getting into a bit of trouble because he got into a bit of drink, more than usual, which led into throwing fists more than usual. But the Lord saved him one day on January 1st, 1915. Became part of a church, threw himself into the work there. However, it was a church that tended towards pacifism. And if you recognize that date, you know this was just prior to World War I. And so he had some decisions to make. He did, however, go ahead and register for the draft, but when he got to the line requesting an exemption, he simply wrote, yes, don't want to fight. But this is the early part of the 20th century, and his request was denied, and so he went off to war. A year later, his battalion in the European theater was seeking to advance against a German position. He writes, quote, the Germans got us, and they got us right smart. They just stopped us dead in our tracks. Their machine guns were, were up there on the heights overlooking us and well hidden and, and couldn't tell for certain where the terrible heavy fire was coming from. And I'm telling you, they were shooting straight. Our boys just went down like long grass before the mowing machine at home. Our attack just faded out, and we were there lying down about halfway across the valley, and those German machine guns and big shells were getting us hard. And wouldn't you know it, the battalion commander ordered them to go up on that ridge to penetrate behind German lines and take out that nest of machine guns. It was a suicide mission. And again, his diary records... And those machine guns were splitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth all around me, something awful. And those Germans were yelling orders, you never heard such a racket in all of your life. I didn't have time to dodge behind a tree or dive into the bush. As soon as those machine guns opened, fired on me, I began to exchange shots with them. There were over 30 of them in continuous action, and all I could do was touch the Germans off just as fast as I could. I was sharpshooting all the time. I kept yelling at them to come down. I didn't want to kill any more than I had to, but it was they or I, and I was giving them the best that I had. One German lieutenant writes that he drained his entire Luger directly at... York, trying to kill him. And yet, realizing his heavy losses, that German yelled out in English, surrender! We surrender! And he surrendered for his entire unit to this Sergeant York. And if you're an old-timer here, you may recognize that movie, Sergeant York. Gary Cooper would go on to star as Sergeant York in 1941, and it would be the biggest blockbuster of the year. But the rest of the story is that Sergeant Alvin York received the Medal of Honor for that day, capturing 35 machine guns, killing more than 25 enemy soldiers, and capturing 132 prisoners. He would become one of World War I's most decorated soldiers. You see, he wasn't defined by his hesitancy. He was defined by the fact he showed up and he stepped into the fight. And as a result, clearly, God granted him victory against this enemy. This enemy with overwhelming odds. And in the same way, we're going to continue on in Hebrews, the preacher writing to this house church senses their hesitancy. He's seen them drift. They are fearful. They're nervous. They, they don't want to stay in the fight. They don't want to stand for Christ. And as he goes through these heroes of faith, he comes to this name that we would not put in the hall of faith. Barak. And yet he wants to show them something. Barak is a Jewish Sergeant York. Barak hesitated. He didn't want to get into the fight. But you know what? His faith was not defined by his hesitancy. And he went. He showed up. And as a result... God granted him victory. You think this house church needs to hear that? Their faith is kind of ugly right now. Their faith is kind of weak. They don't even want to show up. He's going to give them someone to look at and say, emulate this Jewish Sergeant York and show up. Would you pray with me and we'll look at the text together? Gracious Father, we come to You as a body of believers eager to hear what You have for us today. Eager to submit ourselves to, as Aaron said, the authoritative, inspired Word of God. And we need this, Lord. Our faith is weak. And we know from Romans 10 that it is Your Word that strengthens our faith daily both in our our, our personal, private, quiet devotion, but also one-on-one conversations in groups, but especially, Lord, especially our faith is strengthened from this pulpit. Because as Your Word goes out here, it is going out in the same authoritative manner by which it was written. It is being heralded. And so, Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way of the text today, that I would not in any way diminish the truth here, but that I would simply, as we have said before, like a waiter, get it from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. Father, transform us by Your Word. Give us the kind of faith that is not determined, not defined by our hesitant moments, our fearful times, but it is defined by the fact that we show up and You use broken vessels to do Your work. You use the weakest to act in the strongest manner, and you get all the glory. Lord, none of us, not one of us would put Barak in this lineup. But I pray that you would show us today that upon closer examination, there's a reason he's here. And may we be faithful like he was faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we started a new section in Hebrews chapter 11, and it was a rapid-fire list of faithful men. Look at verse 32 with me, if you will, and then we'll come back to Judges chapter 4. Chapter 11, verse 32. I mean, you, you can almost feel how even though Hebrews was written and it was a letter, it was a sermon. And you can just hear this preacher start to hit a stride here in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I mean, i got to use that more often, right? You know, you kind of get going and, and, and what, let us, let's keep going. What more shall I say? And he goes through this, this list of names. For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith... Conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Boom, 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 boom. And you look at these guys and you think, he didn't know his history. Because Gideon was certainly not a warrior in my mind. And yet, God used him. And God did mighty things with him. And this congregation would not be considered the most mature of all body of believers. They would not be model saints. but That's exactly why they need this. Because faith is not something they gave God. Faith is something God gave them. And he's asking them to show up to simply show up and let him do his bidding we looked at Gideon he was fearful he was flawed and we kind of see one of these characteristics in each of the next names Barak Samson and Jephthah these are not model saints but they were saints with the gift of faith Showed up. Some were fearful, some were flawed, but God used them mightily. If last week we learned from Gideon to turn our faith, I'm sorry, turn our our fear into faith, and that faith fears less when it depends on on God more, this week we want to see that Barak's tendency to wait, to pause, his hesitancy doesn't have to define him as long as he shows up. We want to learn how to step into the fight. We want to learn how to show up. We want to learn how to trust that God will throw the punches He wants us to. But we've got to be there because remember, this congregation has been drifting. Three points. Judges 4, if you'll go ahead and turn there. Three points will guide our time. One, remember fear is the enemy. Fear is the enemy. Number two, step into the ring. And number three, trust God in the fight. Let's look at the first one. Remember fear is the enemy. The author of the book of Judges is going to set the stage in chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read it for you again. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that cycle over and over again, don't we? After Ehud died. Ehud, you may go back and read, he was the left-handed judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagoim. Now, this sounds, if you're a Jew, this sounds like an ancient Near Eastern version of a Vegas prize fight, kind of like, and in this corner, weighing in at 20 stone, the prince of pagans, the Canaanite crusher, Jabin, the king of Canaan. I mean, he's supposed to have some weight to it. Jabin. Jabin was actually a, uh, probably a dynastic title, like Pharaoh. So you heard Jabin, it had some, some weight to it. Jabin, king of Canaan, he's a guy that's got a lot of weight behind him. And this is a tag team fight. He's got Sisera, a four-star general, with him. And this battle is going to take place in the north, in the area of the Sea of Galilee. And these fellows are a force to be reckoned with. Look at verse 3. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord. That's the second part of the cycle. For he had, what does it say? Not just 900 chariots, 900 Iron chariots, okay? Again, this is some serious firepower. Ancient Near Eastern version of tanks, okay? What do the Israelites have? Farm implements. Wood farm implements. This guy has armor-plated chariots, tanks. And for 20 years, they were oppressed by this people. And God hears their cry and begins to provide deliverance. But he wants to use a particular individual to provide that deliverance. Remember, God gets all the glory, but he likes to use us. You know, think about it. When you're a Gideon, when you're a Barak, in fact, when you're anyone, you really can't steal God's glory, can you? Because you just don't do much but show up. So number two... He wants Barak to step into the ring. Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. All right, now we've been going through our equipping hour, going through the different books of the Bible. We just finished, finished the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And what do we see in Exodus? This sounds awfully familiar. That the sons of Israel would come up to Moses and he would judge them from morning until evening. Well, during this time, we have Deborah is doing that work. From morning until evening, she's sitting under this tree. Verse 6, and she summons Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the God of Israel has commanded. Not I've commanded. Not I'm telling you. God has told me to tell you, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And you're meant to, right now, as a Jew, go, Barak! Barak, he's going to be able to take out Jabin. He can do this. He's powerful. How do I know? Barak's name means... Lightning. So again, that, that Vegas prize fight, he's got lightning on his shorts there, all right? He's, he's tough. He's going to be able to handle this guy. And she says, look here, lightning. That's what it sounds like, Deborah. Look here. You need to get in there and you need to let him have it. God says, it's time. We've cried out to him. He's going to, he's going to deliver us. And in fact, you can even take 10,000 men to do it. I mean, Gideon would be happy about this, wouldn't he? Right? Interesting side note here, Mount Tabor, we don't recognize that, but early church uh, tradition and history says that's where the transfiguration took place. So this is in the north around the ministry where Christ was. In verse 7, there's an interesting phrase. It says, and literally, I will draw out to you Sisera. You draw out the 10,000 men, and I will draw out for you Sisera. I'm going to give him and his entire armored force to you. It's it's all going to come to you. Your job is to what? Say it with me. Show up. This is show up faith. You show up. And Barak says, tell me where to sign. I'm ready to do this, right? It's not what he says. Verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I'm all about this deliverance thing, but I'm just not feeling the call. And right now, that's probably ringing in your ears because we've probably said that, right? We we know those Ephesians two ten opportunities, the good works which God has prepared beforehand, in order that we might what walk in them. They're so clear. And yet sometimes those opportunities pop up and we're like, yeah, it's bad timing. Uh, this is probably going to cost me in emotion, in relationship, in money. Yeah, Lord, give, give me something that fits better with my schedule. I don't, I don't really have the sort of uh, courage to do this right now. There's plenty of other more seasoned saints, Lord, that would, that would be better at this. You know, Joe, he's got the gift of evangelism. I cannot tell you the amount of options I get all the time. Remember the option, okay? You old Oilers fans out there, that was all they knew how to do. You know, the option. Quarterback would get it and he'd just pitch it off. Christians use the option way too much. Uh, They're always pitching that opportunity, that Ephesians 2.10 opportunity off to someone else. When they're simply supposed to step into it. And Barak says, I'm not going without you. And at this point, you kind of expect her to say, fine, you lost out, I'm going to send someone else. But she doesn't do that. She's gracious, but she does give it to him straight in verse 9. She said, "I, I will surely go with you. But nevertheless, the honor will not be yours on the journey you're about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Wow. Now, the text doesn't tell us there, but what do you imagine Barak felt at that moment? Like, oh, I'm in this thing now. I wish I hadn't said anything. Because now he's locked, he's loaded, and he knows how it's going to end. Right? Berric should have had the Apostle Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, if you are this first century church, probably in Rome, in a house church and you've been forsaking the assembling together, and you've been hiding more than normal, and you've been trying to to blend into the world and sort of wear beige, This, this rings true. I mean, you get the parallels. He's missing an opportunity to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. God simply wants Barak to show up, and he does the option and loses out. So my question, I mean, I'm just getting into this, and I'm saying, how did this guy ever make it into the Hall of Faith? Would you put him in there? I'm embarrassed for him. I identify with him, don't get me wrong, but I'm embarrassed for him. He went from lightning barrack to lightfoot barrack, right? Right? But you know what? Verse 10 tells us why he made it in. He went. He went. Yeah, he hesitated. Yes, he was fearful. Yes, he made excuses. But ultimately, he went. He showed up. And at the end of the day, his faith stepped into the fight. And that's exactly what the preacher wants this first century church to do. Let me go ahead and start to make application. That's exactly what the inspired Word of God wants us to do. To show up. To show up. And trust that God will fight our battles. Well, look at verse 11. The author going to interject something he's going to come back later and draw upon. I want to explain it to you. Verse 11, it says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, a circle separated, if you will, from the sons of Hobab, the, father of, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'afarim, which is near, I'm sorry, Naim, which is near Kadesh. So we have this fellow named Heber the Kenite, he seems to be injected into this story, and then, and then the author pulls away from it again. Let me tell you about him, and you'll see why he comes back to him. The Kenites were, were metal workers. They were blacksmiths. Now, remember Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. He was a Kenite. These are his people. And what happened when the Israelites left Egypt, the Kenites joined up with them the Kenites are part of the Israelites. Heber, his name literally means ally or friend. If he lived in Texas, he'd be named Amigo, okay? I mean, literally, when you say his name, that's kind of what you think of. So if you're an Israelite, you say Heber, you're like, yeah, he's our buddy. I mean, he may not have true Israelite blood, but he's one of us. But here, he switches sides. He goes to the north. He crosses the Mason-Dixon line and says, you know what? I don't really want to be part of the Israelites so much. He becomes a friend with Jabin and Sisera, and he most likely signs a treaty with them. Now, why would someone do that? Why would someone choose to go and be a Heber, a friend, an ally to the enemy? I think there's a lot of reasons. You know, he's, he's tired of business being bad, right? He's, he's a blacksmith. He can do a whole lot more working on iron chariots than he can on wood farm implements. The money's better. The friends are better. The reputation's better. Popularity's better. Lives in a nicer tent. There's a whole lot of reasons. But they all boil down to... Choosing to be with the world rather than with God's people. So he changes sides. We're going to come back to that, but just kind of tuck that in the back right now. Look at our third point. Trust God in the fight. Verse 12. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all of his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. Let me recap, because there's a lot of names here, a lot of difficult pronouncing names. General Sisera works for King Jabin, king of the Canaanites, who crushes the Israelites, right? They've got the latest in military weaponry, 900 ancient Near Eastern tanks. The Israelite warrior... Formerly known as Lightning Barrack, was the guy chosen to fight by Deborah, whose name means bee, who sits under the tree. Okay? It helped me remember all these things, okay? So we got all the characters here. So we're all on the same page. He's fearful, he has flawed faith. But rather than being disqualified, it is a momentary sin. And that's the point I'm making. And he shows up. Look at verse 14. Deborah says to Barak, Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He went, he got in the fight. And we're going to find out that he's going to win. Now, side note here about Deborah. I like this gal. And, and I'll also preach, at some point, preach Judges 4 about Deborah because there's a lot here about her. She, she's got chutzpah, right? I mean, she's confident in God, apparently a lot more confident than even Barak. She's serious about the Word. Now, let me just... Pause there and explain that. She's serious about the Word. Because to be a prophet or a prophetess in the Old Testament required that you be what percentage correct? 100%. Or you were stoned. She holds the Word of God so high that if it says, thus saith the Lord, whether it is the first five books of the Old Testament, which were written, or it was from God before the closing of the canon, she believed it. She didn't even have to say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's, I believe it, right? She's confident. And and you're meant to look at her and say, yes, she's an amazing woman, but you're also meant to look at it against the black backdrop of, where are the men? But remember, this is the time of Judges, and there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. So as great as Deborah is and she is, you're meant to also look and say, where are all the men? But just a side note here, I think we have to really uh, be encouraged by this, even in a very, very dark time. You know, General Al Haig gave the British a backhanded compliment one time, especially in a day when all of politics was full of men. He said, Margaret Thatcher was the best man in the British cabinet. <laughs> Deborah is kind of the best man right now in the Israelite army. But let's come back to Barak. He's not going to be defined by his hesitancy. And this first century audience is meant to look at this. Because they've been hesitant, right? Right? We know from early chapters in Hebrews, they have been willfully drifting. There's this this metaphor, this picture that they've been willfully putting their fingers in their ears so that they would not have to hear God's word so much because if they then heard it, they had to then show up and stand for it. And so there's this passive, uh, selective ignorance where they're backing up, backing up, and drifting and drifting. And this preacher wants to tell them, don't be defined by your drifting, by your hesitancy. Get in the game. Show up. You don't have to be defined by that. But don't think for a moment that that is a static position. I love to scuba dive. And if you've you've ever been drift diving... It's a very unusual experience. They call it lazy man's diving. They drop you off. You you go down. You look at Coral Reef. It's real pretty. And then you come up about 45 minutes later, and you realize you're a mile away. How did that happen? It's because there's a current running there, and you don't realize you've drifted. And he's saying, you're drifting. You're, You're being hesitant in your faith. It doesn't have to define you. But if you don't get in the fight, if you don't show up, there is a destination to your drifting, and it's judgment. And so he's trying to say, look, God who gave you the gift of faith will also use it to fight the battles for you. You see? It recalls to mind Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. All right, we'll look at verse 15. The Hebrew church is remembering this as one who has been hesitant. And yet the Lord works through Barak, in verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. It reminds me of that old show, The Cops. It's always a guy who runs like he thinks he can outrun a radio, right? Do you think you can outrun God when you're in sin? No. He gets out of his chair. he starts running. The Lord routs Sisera. Literally, he confused everyone, threw them into a panic. Sisera climbs out of his armor-plated tank, runs for it on foot. And watch what happens here. Verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heroseth, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Oh, so I guess Sisera died. That's what happened, right? Not so much. You see, he gets away. He starts to make a run for it. Now, be warned, the rest of this story, as Paul Harvey used to say, is a bit rated R. But the Bible doesn't gloss over violence, does it? Barak's faith is not pretty. God has promised him that he would win this battle. He has destroyed Sisera's entire army, but Sisera is on the run. This four-star general runs, and he's running by a woman's tent, of all things. A woman. Her name is J.L., the wife of Amigo. Okay? Remember him? Heber, the Kenite? She walks out of her tent. She sees this scared general hightailing it down, and she says hey, come here, turn aside here, turn aside to me, don't be afraid. And he runs into her tent, and he feels like he's completely safe. Why? No man would ever enter another woman's tent unless he was her husband. And these aren't like Coleman tents, you know. These are massive, massive tents, room after room after room, lots of furniture, lots of rugs. He hides under a rug Verse 19, he says, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk. I think that was interesting. And then she covers him up. He says, stand in the doorway of the tent. And if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is anyone here? I want you to say no. And he thinks he's safe in his sin. Right? He's in a woman's tent where no one will come in. He's covered up and she gives him milk. Now, when you're exhausted and you let down and then you're finally put under covers with a warm bottle of milk, <laughs> what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall asleep. Now, why would J.L. do this? By the way, Jael's name means goat. Goat is the wife of Amigo, okay, of Heber. We're going to find out. Well, at this point, J.L. realizes that Sisera has lost the battle and that freedom for the Israelites was at hand. I think she also realizes something else. That her husband has been a passive traitor. And no matter where he stands, she's going to do the right thing. Look at verse 21. Jael took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Ooh, what kind of woman can do that? Take an 18-inch tent peg and run it through a man's skull into the ground, a Bedouin woman. Do you know in the ancient Near East and even today, do you know who sets up the tents? The women do. It is not an easy job. Now, what's interesting about this is the prophecy is that a woman's going to take credit and everyone thinks it's Deborah, but it's not. It's the goat. The goat beats out the general for the glory. Verse 22, and behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come here, I'll show you who you're looking for. I think I got something you want to see. Sisera has to go in and see the consequences of his own hesitancy. And this is the point. You don't have to be defined by your hesitancy and faith. There are consequences, okay? But the consequences here are a little embarrassment. The Israelites are chattering, I'll promise you, not about Barak and his great victory. They're chattering about Jael and what she did. But you can handle a little embarrassment because Barak showed himself to be faithful, and he's in eternity in heaven now. These Hebrew Christians that are drifting, they're in that moment of hesitancy. It's not a static position. They've got to either move forward and show up or continue to drift into judgment. It doesn't mean that they're losing their salvation. It means, as this preacher keeps saying, your faith will endure. Your faith will persevere. Genuine faith does so, because it's a gift of God. And if it doesn't, you never had it. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.11, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also, what? Deny us. If Barak had said, I ain't going no matter what, it would prove that his faith was never really real. If this Hebrew church says, I'm going to continue to back away and I'm not coming back, it's going to prove that their faith was never real. No one is talking about that in Christendom today. Why? Because we like to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, get dunked, and say, yeah, I became a Christian when I was six years old, but I haven't been to church since. I had a great conversation with someone last night encouraging them to witness to a family member because they were trying to get them into healthy church. And I said, no, you need a witness to him. What he needs is repentance. And then we'll find him a church. I would love to have him come here, but it's not about being in a good church. It's about him getting getting him saved. So the knockout punch here was delivered by J.L. and not a general. But the point of the whole passage is that Barak showed up. And we need to show up. Verse 23, so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. God did all the work because Barak showed up. So let's apply this. Because we're, hopefully we are not like the Hebrew church in that we're drifting. But I would say that there's parallels where our faith is often hesitant. Is, is, that a, is that a fair statement? We're fearful. And, and we have a tendency to consider pauses not that big of a deal until the pause becomes another pause and another pause. And now we're no longer moving forward, but we're drifting backwards. So I have a question here. What has you paused? What has you at a standstill? What has your faith stopped? As it were, in the middle of an ocean in a current where you're you're not in a static position, but you feel like you are. But you don't want to go forward. I don't know everyone's situations, but I know a lot. And I know there is one commonality, and that is the fear that if I advance in this situation, it will cost me. It will cost me. And we have this terrible aversion to pain. And that's natural, right? And so we, we think, I, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. It will hurt. We always say hurt too bad, but we, what we really mean is it will hurt. You don't want it to hurt. It's going to cost us in reputation, in friendships, in business. For this first century church, it was even in property. That's why Hebrew was willing to move away. That's why this Hebrew church is willing to drift away. That's why we are willing to say and do all the right things, but not step into the fight. This passage is saying we've got to show up. We've got to step into the fight. We've got to take that first step Yes, knowing it will cost. Let me ask you a question. So I'm going to use the one for relationships because that's the one that pains me the most. I'll tell you, after being a senior pastor here for 16 years, I never, ever am okay with someone leaving. For the right reasons, for the wrong reasons, it just, especially when, it's, when you know, they're taking a shot. It always hurts. I think it should always hurt. But that doesn't mean that I can trim my sails and start to do things differently in order to keep people for the wrong reasons. And so think about your conversations that you don't want to have because they will cost you, right? How do you stop yourself from hesitating? At least more than a moment. Let's just talk about the practical. I think the only way is to have a godlike love for someone. I think we have to quit operating in our own style or preference of love, whether whether it be a familial love, a friendship love, a romantic love, all these things that are natural and and normative to us as humans. I think we have to do what only Christians can do, and that is operate in an agapau, a a divine kind of love that does what is best for another regardless of the cost. Now, I'm not saying you go around and you be a fix-it person. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying when you know someone is headed down a road or caught in a trespass, when you know sin will be damaging, when you know that they're drifting, in humility, as Galatians 6 says, each one look into yourself. Are you willing to have the loving conversation counting that it will cost you? Maybe even in a friendship, but you love them enough To do it. And then you take that situation. That's the hardest one for me. But your situation may be having to stand up at work. Having to tell friends, no, I'm not going to do that with you. Having to go back and apologize to someone for lying and saying, I will make this right. Whatever it is, it is being faithful according to Scripture. God has called this Hebrew church out of the world. They're in Rome. They have called them. He has called them to be pure and holy and blameless bride of Christ. Same is true for us. And as such, we have to do hard things because we represent the king. And so I would say the way we do it when we feel ourselves hesitating is to say, you know what? It is going to cost. But as Paul said, it's momentary light affliction, right? It's It's mild. It's a little sting compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us or compared to the pain that our Savior went through. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it as an act of worship because I love God and I love others, right? It's the Shema, right? So I'm going to love God with the kind of love that He loved me, and I'm going to love others in the way that He loved me doing what is best for them, regardless of the cost. And all of a sudden, then we're not sadistic. We don't like the pain, but we don't think about the pain because it's an act of worship. So go back to Barak. What would Barak's act of worship, when he felt that fear, that hesitation, I don't want to go. I've seen their military capability. I know Sisera is the best five-star general out there. He pauses, pauses, but it's momentary. And he says, you know what? God has saved me. He's put his faith in me. He's redeemed me. He brought my people out of Egypt. I'll take this step. It will cost me. I might lose an arm. I might even die on the battlefield, but it's momentary light affliction. First century church, I'm losing my property. I'm losing my friends. I'm losing my family. Am I willing to do this? I can do this because it's an act of worship and I love. Show up. Show up. Our hesitancy need not define us. Let me leave you with this. But if we don't move forward, it will define us.